Keep your, keep your finger in James 5. That is going to be the passage that kind of does all the heavy lifting for us today. Um, that's the passage that's going to show us Jesus more clearly today. And as you can tell from Coral reading it, it's going to be on patience and our suffering and grumbling. And this is going to be tough for me because I'm not a very patient person. Right? I don't really have time for it. Did you get that? Hey, these are the jokes today. All right? No, really, it would have been better for Kevin or somebody else to preach this word today. Um, Kevin's out of town. Um, and Kevin is a lot more patient than me. Uh, I can make ten decisions in the time it takes Kevin to make one. And it's not because he's dumb. It's not because I'm smart. It's not because I'm brilliant or an executive or experienced. It's just simply because I'm very, very impatient. You know, and because of that, he makes ten times less mistakes than I do, I'm sure. You know, so, I mean, is there anything worse? Think about it. Is there anything worse than being in a mess simply because you were impatient? All you speeding ticket dwellers, right? Anyone, raise your hand if you've not had a speeding ticket. Not. Raise it high. Come on, be proud. Like six of you? Six out of, that's a lot. You liar. I racked, up, I racked up 12 speeding tickets in the first five years of having a driver's license in West Texas. All of them, no, no emergencies in that at all. It's all simply because I was very, very, very impatient, you know? I'm one of those people that sits behind you on Kingston Pike at one of our 48 stoplights all the way down. And if you're not going, I'm tapping my foot, tapping my foot. And if you don't hit your gas, within 0.7 seconds after that light turns green, I'm tapping my horn, right? I'm that guy. I'm very awesome when I'm in that mode, you know? Fun to be around. Or the elevator, when everyone's standing around it and the light's on because it's already been pushed. I'll just walk up and push on it. There's just something that just screams to push on it, you know, like it's going to work if you just push it one more time. Again, I'm very awesome when I'm in that mode, you know. But in all seriousness, I mean, as intolerable as I could be and just being impatient, having to be patient inside of deep suffering is something that's incredibly hard for all of us to do. I mean, think about it. Think about hard sickness, like deep, deep hard sickness. Or financial ruin kind of stretches over time. Or crushed dreams, hopes that have turned upside down on you, marital issues. I mean, these are things that you wake up in the morning and it's still there. Anyone ever have suffering on that level that just drags over time? You wake up and there's that moment where you're like, oh, that's still there. It's like a cloud that just kind of hovers above your head. You know, I grumble. I get real grumbly when I'm in that kind of a situation. I grumble against mankind. I grumble against God. I get vocal. I get bitter. I get aggressive. So today you're in luck. Because even though I wish Kevin was here preaching this instead of me, I am totally qualified to preach on being an impatient mess. Right? And I have a feeling you're probably perfectly qualified to listen. Anyone in here want to grow in patience? Right? So let's look in James 5.7, and we're going to pause a couple times through this because I'd like to explain some of these parts of Scripture. So look in your Bible, or it will be on the screen. And it says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. 
See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So James here is talking to a church that is going through immense pressure. And as we've been walking our way through the entire book of James, you've started to see that. I mean, even last week, we looked at how the rich and wealthy component of society was really laying the wood to the poor. They were really condemning them, taking them to court, even trying to kill them. That's an external pressure. The church, it was really feeling that. Next week, we're going to talk about sickness. Or in two weeks, rather, we'll talk about sickness. That's an internal pressure. But nonetheless, we need patience in this. And the thing is, is James says that thing that you never, ever want to hear when you're in the middle of suffering. Be patient. Have you ever tried to tell someone who's suffering to be patient? It's not received very well, is it? But he says it here. He says it twice. And he says, guess what? Your patience will end when Jesus comes back. And we don't like to hear that, right? We want there to be a finish line to our suffering now. And sometimes there is. A lot of times there is. But he says, be patient for when? For when our king comes back to collect up his family. One day, you won't have to be patient anymore. Think about this. One day, you won't have to be patient anymore. One day, impatience won't be a thing you'll ever experience. So he's saying be patient until patience is a memory. I mean, everybody think, everyone pick an area in your life right now that you're having to exercise deep patience for. I don't know what that might be. Maybe a spouse is sick and he or she is just not getting better, right? Maybe that job is just starting to look like it's not going to do what you thought it was going to do, right? Maybe you're just struggling through the same thing over and over and over again. Maybe that guy's not noticing you. Maybe that girl's not noticing you. Maybe, maybe your hopes and all of your dreams are starting to kind of go south and you're wondering, should I get used to this as my new normal? I don't know what it might be for you, but fix your mind on that. There will be a day where that won't be around anymore. There will be a day where you won't have to have patience for that thing to be taken away or fixed. There will be a day where you and me are together, if you're a Christian, looking at each other in the glory of Jesus, saying, man, do you remember what it was like to be patient? And we'll say, I don't think so. It's hard for me to remember that. I mean, look at this passage. This one's not doing a whole lot of work, so just look at it on the screen. This is going to be Revelation 21. And this is John, and he says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now this is a beautiful piece of scripture we hear all the time. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, For the former things have passed away. Patience will be one of those former things. Patience in the midst of suffering will be one of those former things. It's hard to conceive of that, isn't it? But now I want you to come back to today. Where that thing is still there. And it stretches you. And it draws you thin. And it plays you deep. And it twists you all around. And it follows you wherever you go. 
You know, patience is simply this. It's waiting on God with the promise that God will do as He has promised, that God will come through. It's virtually waiting on God to move. That's what patience is. Now, the thing is, is God does not promise to alleviate your immediate ills. He doesn't promise that. He doesn't promise that He's going to alleviate and be a rescue to your immediate discomfort. He doesn't promise us that. But what He does promise, He will keep. And that is that He will come back one day. He will come back and wipe away all those things that are former things. And He will pull us together as a united family in a new kingdom, with a new name, with a new king, with a new existence. And that's something He wants us to aim our lives at. He's saying, be soaked in that reality, that part of the gospel. Aim your life at that. The fact that I'm coming back. The fact that I'm going to rescue you. The fact that I'm going to come and collect. And everything that grieves you, that makes you ache, that makes you hurt, that makes you sad, it's all going to be gone. Fix your reality on that. Let that frame your reality in your suffering now. Be patient. Be patient, He says. So our patience is supposed to look a little bit different than the world's because it's aimed at a different place. Our rescuer looks different, right? And we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but I mean, think about what the world does. It wrings its hands. It just wonders. It's just waiting for its luck to change. Maybe my luck will change. Maybe karma will come back around, right? Maybe the seasons will just evolve. But folks, we're supposed to have a different disposition. We're supposed to have a different posture. We're supposed to be Jesus-saturated people. We're supposed to be gospel-saturated people that have our hope in a different alleviation, that have our hope in a different rescuer. That's what he's saying. And he gives us this beautiful example of a Palestinian farmer, right? Look at the farmer, he says. Now, the Palestinian farmer is not like the farmers we have today. Farmers we have today, they have water reservoirs um, above or below the ground. They have fancy, very technologically advanced irrigation systems that work on timers and deliver water on demand right when they want it. But back then, uh uh-uh. You had rain coming from clouds. Old school, right? You had two rains. You had the early rain and you had the late rain, just like it says. The early rain was what would establish the seeds right after sowing. It would begin the process of germination in the seeds. The late rain, the non-spring rain, the late rain would be the one that would mature the crop so that it would yield a very good harvest, right? So it's crazy because this farmer would sow seeds, the early rain would come, and then he would wait. And then he would wait. And then he would wait... And wait, looking at the clouds, waiting more. And then he'd wake up one day, and then he would wait. And wait again. And the thing is, is if that second rain didn't come, that harvest wouldn't mature. Then he was in a jam. Then he was in a jam. Historically, it's very true that farmers would have to sell their children into bond service, not so that the farmer could make money, but so that the kids could eat. I want you to think about that. We're still separated from that now. That just doesn't happen today. But think about that. Could you imagine the future of your family and life hinging on a rain cloud? Could you imagine the future of you knowing your kids hinging on whether there would be rain? James says patience is like that. Patience is like that. Not just waiting, but waiting out of control. Nothing you could do. Unable to manipulate variables to fall in your favor. Powerless to intercede. Just waiting. Now listen, 
I would be willing to say that everybody here would like to grow in patience. But guess how God does that? Guess how he, in James' words, establishes our heart, which just is a fancy word for strengthens. Guess how he does that? He chunks us into seasons where if he doesn't move, we fail. That's how your patience gets stretched out. If He puts you in places, in seasons, in moments, in months, in weeks, that unless He comes and delivers you, everything fails. You're hopeless without His move. Defenseless without His move. And you have to give up control for that. Man, we hate that, don't we? I hate it. I hate giving up control. We have to wait on His pace. At his cadence, on his hand, according to his will and his timing. You know where the lost and dying world just wrings its hands and takes a ton of anxiety meds and loses hair and gets heart disease because it can't figure out how to get out of its suffering and it does everything it can of its own power to do. We are supposed to have a trusting disposition that looks radically different. Radically different. With the knowledge that he has done something beautiful, he is doing something beautiful, and he will come, he will come back. And He will capture us, and He will do something, yet again, very beautiful for us. Why? Because He promised He would. Because He promised. So we should look different. Jesus-purchased people should look differently. But because we don't, James trains us here. And he says one of the ways, one of the things we do to try to get control in our own suffering is to take the power back into our hands. Because we hate surrendering control to God. So I'm going to skip ahead. We haven't done this in the whole book of James. I'm skipping ahead all the way from verse 7 to verse 12, which will be the next one up on the screen or in your Bible. It says this. It's a quirky little verse. It says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you might not fall under condemnation. What a weird... I mean, what does that even mean? James's listeners were getting in the habit of bartering with people and bartering with God in order to get control back in their moments of suffering. In order to avoid courts, in order to avoid sharp conflict with each other, they would quadruple pinky swear. They would say anything they could to add credibility to them. Their yes wasn't good enough anymore. Their no wasn't good enough. They needed something bigger, extra. They couldn't wait on God. So they're going to take it back into their own hands. And they're going to swear or give an oath. And we do the same thing today. We do the same thing today. Oh, I mean it. But no, listen, listen. I mean, I really mean it this time. I mean, I'm... Listen. I mean it this time. And we do it with God too, don't we? God, if you just do this one thing, I promise all... Have any of you ever done that? God, if you just take this away, then I promise I'll do, and I swear I'll do it. Bartering with God, but we don't have to barter with God. We don't have to manipulate God. He loves us. He didn't even withhold His Son from us. But that's what we do. But Luke, what's the big deal with that? Who cares? That's how people act when they're not convinced that God is in control. That's how people act when people aren't convinced that God is in total control, that is how the world acts. It's not a Christ-following disposition. It's a world-following disposition. So this isn't the main point of today. I did want to explain verse 12 a little bit and skip ahead. But I do want to ask these questions before I move on. And it's just this. Where do you do that? Where do you act like the world when you feel hemmed in? Where do you do that? Where do you manipulate and deny God's power and try to exercise your own so that you can escape suffering. 
so that you don't have to be patient anymore, so that people really will believe you. Where do you do that? Because we do that when we suffer. We do something else when we suffer too, and it goes on to verse 9 as we continue down the passage. He says this, James says this, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged, because behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So now James talks about our response with each other, which is grumbling, because we like it. Because we like the grumble back and forth at each other, at God. We just like the vent. We like the grumble. Even this morning, I always wake up. I have this routine on Sunday mornings. Wake up at 5 in the office by 5.10. I pray until I wake my son up. And I'm in there praying. And I caught myself before. You know there's always that dead time right before you pray. And you just kind of get yourself ready. I was doing that. And I was outwardly grumbling. Oh, this is too cold. Back hurts. I just started grumbling out loud. It was weird. Then I started getting mad at people. Left that there again. I just started grumbling. And I thought, isn't that funny? I'm preaching on this today. God, thanks for that. We like to grumble. And he tells us to stop. Stop grumbling. Stop complaining. Stop venting. Stop bleeding. Stop mocking. Stop whining. Stop whimpering. Stop all of it. Because it is actually the anti-gospel. It's anti-grace. It's the opposite. It's on the other end of the scale from grace and the gospel. Think about it. Our Lord, our King, draped on a tree, bleeding out for you and me, trading out His righteousness for our total unrighteousness. This whole beautiful thing called atonement is happening. And the thing was, that was a crime against Him at our hands. Peter said, God put Him on the cross, but you murdered Him. We put Him up there. Now, He had a right to grumble. Now, He had a right to complain. He had a right to mock humanity. He had a right to vent on humanity. And he didn't. What leaked out of his mouth instead of complaint? Grace. Father, forgive them. He brought us grace and adoption when he should have brought something a little bit sharper with that. He should have brought some mockery. That's what we would have done. That's what the thief right next to him did, right? That's Because that's how creation reacts. That's what we should have done. But he didn't. He didn't. This is why James says that the judge is very present. In fact, he's at the door. We have a better judge. One that doesn't dispense complaints and mockery and grumbling, but he dispenses grace instead. So when we as a people, especially towards each other, dispense grace back and forth, especially in sharp conflict, we look, we image, we smell like, and we echo the gospel that arrested us. And we're showing by our life that... We're captured by the gospel. We're captured by the act and the passion of Jesus. But whenever we're upside down and we're grumbling towards each other, grumbling out loud, complaining against each other, then we show, and hear this, we show that we're denying the gospel. I'm showing that I deny the gospel. I mean, is that too sharp? Does that sting a little bit? It stings me. I don't like to think of myself as someone that denies the gospel. But whenever I grumble, it's exactly what I'm doing. Now listen, it's okay if it stings. It's all right. We talked about this a little bit last week, but the true gospel message is that because of what Jesus did, because of his scandalous action on that cross, which we did not deserve, because he did that, you are totally free to fail. 
Hear me very clearly. You are totally free to fail and you are totally free to grow all at the same time. What, what does that mean for today? It means you're free to grumble. I, I'm going to be done in t- 20 minutes. And you could leave here and you could grumble all day long. And it doesn't change God's affection towards you if you're a Christian. It doesn't change it. He's not less happy with you. He's not less in love with you. He doesn't demote you. You could be the worst grumbler in the world. And His grace has already captured that. You could actually grow. You're free to grow as well, friend. And you could walk out and you could be perfect. And you could never grumble again. Right? Never grumble. Never complain. Always talk about what the cross has done for you. Always talk about the beauty of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't love you any more than He ever did. You don't get extra credit. It's not on your merits that grace visited you. It was on the merits of another that grace visited you. So yeah, listen, James is saying stop grumbling. Just stop it. Because whenever you do, you just don't look like Jesus very much. But this is something you were saved to do, not something you're saved because you did. That's a radical difference. We can't get those wires crossed. Because whenever you do, you enter the world of legalism, of law, of rules, dictating how good you should feel about yourself in front of God. But Jesus already did that work for us. So if you grumble today, join me as a fellow grumbler. We're going to revisit the gospel. Let it amaze you. Let it entice you. Let it intoxicate you. Listen, friend, you're worth grumbling about. You're worth complaining about. You're worth mockery. But we don't get it. We don't get it. We get grace instead. Even though we crushed and we abused Jesus, we get grace instead. We're not the recipients of complaint anymore. So I want you to remember that. Remember the cross. Next time you've got a headache and you're looking out your front door and you see your neighbor's dog plop one in your front lawn and you're like, what? I just mowed. Now everyone can see it. It's all like sitting above the grass line and the neighbor's not going to pick it up. They just kind of look at it and they go back in. (laughs) Remember this. Remember the cross. Next time that Yahoo on Kingston Pike taps his horn. A little tap, of course, but just a tap. Remember that. Remember that next time your guy doesn't get elected and your retirement takes a plunge. Right? Remember grumbling. Remember what grumbling is produced from. What complaint is produced from. Okay? And listen, even when we don't grumble with our mouth, rolling your eyes, this, it's the same thing. Watch this. Just see my neck action right there? Watch this. Whenever you do that, it took a lot of practice. And I'm not a signing expert. We have signing experts in here, but I'm pretty sure what this translates is grumbling of sorts. And what we show is that I am not fascinated enough with the grace that Jesus has brought, so I have to secure it from everybody else. So you better be graceful to me, and you better visit me with grace, and you better pull it off well. Because if you can't produce grace for me and be graceful towards me, then I'm not going to be graceful, and I'm just going to grumble. And that's what we do when we're not full and our tank is full from the grace that has come from Jesus Christ. We try to secure it in each other. That's idolatry and it's going to fail. Right? That's the problem. That's the problem. Now, when we grumble, so what this means is, is when we grumble, one of the things it does is it teaches us to question God's will and to question God's goodness. It re it reinstalls and it reinforces in our heart that God is not present. He's not very interested. 
He's not excited. He's not in control. It reinforces that lie over and over. That's what happens when we grumble. We're teaching ourselves, we're teaching others around us, and we're reinforcing these things. And when we do that, we totally miss God's goodness. I caught myself this morning on grumbling item on the list number four. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to preach the gospel to myself. God, this is how good you've been to me. The cross means a lot to all of us. The cross means something very specific to me. There's some things that he's rescued me from that I'd be dead in right now if it wasn't for him. And as I preached this to myself, man, I got so excited. Those things were still there that I was grumbling about, but they've been redefined a little bit. They've been redefined for me because I'm satisfied in the grace that has come from God. I'm not looking for it in people. Not at that moment. It reinforces this lie when we don't take care of that. Instead of saying, God, you're good, we say the opposite. God, what are you doing? God, what the heck are you doing? I've been praying for this over and over and over and over again. I've had, I read this book. I went to this conference. I have this prayer chain going. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I'm living a good life and you won't take this away. It seems to me like you're out to get me, not like you're out for me. What are you doing? And when we've done that, you just started looking like the world. I've just started looking like the world. Because we've stopped measuring out God's grace and His goodness towards us. Instead, we're just voicing outside the things that cause us to grumble. But Luke, I'm not grumbling against God. It's the bank. It's my neighbor. It's my professor. It's my syndrome. It's my fill-in-the-blank. Okay, now listen. Brace yourself for this. Hate me later. Hear me now. Brace yourself. God designed that thing to be in your life, to produce a level of patience and character that would be good for you, would look like Him, and bring glory to Him. That's why that's there. That's why that's there. It's His idea. He allowed it to happen. You have to hear that. When you grumble about the things in your life, you're grumbling against God. It's not your bank. It's not your neighbor. It's not your syndrome. You're grumbling against God. He placed those things in there to develop a character and a patience that looked and smelled like Jesus, which will be the happiest, most joyful place you'll ever live, and it does glorify God. Right? But we don't like that. We hate that doctrine. We hate that. And so we, because we've grown up with this unbiblical understanding of God. Like he's just some arthritic old man that, you know, he's so busy with the Mideast and China and he turns around and then he's like, look at this big mess that just happened. I didn't even see this happen to you. This wasn't my plan. I didn't mean for this to happen to you. Said devil. That devil's so slippery. Every time I turn around, man, he gets another one by me. I just can't keep up anymore with this devil. I can't keep up with creation. I'm too old. iPads and identity theft and ADHD and all this stuff. I can't keep up. Good luck, brother. Good luck. I think one day I'm coming back and we'll get you, you know? Good luck, humanity. Like, that's God. Friend, he's in control. He's way ahead of the game. He's the author and the architect. He's way ahead of the game. I don't know where we got that weird theology. We get it from each other. We get it from great movies, I'm sure. We get it from just our own flesh, but it crops up. And we have this weird, cracked view of God. The truth is, is when we grumble, we're grumbling against God. Now, many, no doubt, hate what I'm saying right now. (laughs) 
Because we don't like to see our trouble spots and we don't like to see our suffering as building anything in us and giving God any glory. We definitely don't like that because it makes God look like a megalomaniac who's only interested in his own glory, right? That's something we struggle with. And our flesh, it loves to play the victim. And the problem for us is, is we don't like the idea of being a victim at God's hand and his will. We definitely don't like suffering for his glory. Now, don't get me wrong. We do like to suffer for our own glory. We'll all suffer all day if it elevates us and glorifies us. We'll suffer all day long. But if it's for the glory of another, (laughs) we're going to push back. We're going to push back real fast. Our flesh hates suffering, and we hate having to be patient in the middle of that suffering. But listen to what God says. He says, hey, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And all this garbage, I'm erasing it. I'm turning it off. No more pain, no more dying, no more sin's effect, no more waking up scared, waking up confused. No more weird tension when you walk in a room and you don't know anybody. No more bad knees, no more contact lenses, no more chiropractors, no more weird jank in your marriage. No more any of that. No more patience in the midst of suffering because there will be no more suffering. No more longing for God to show up because He's going to be right there. It's the very light source of His new kingdom. He is right there, very present. That's what He's saying. So until then, be gospel-saturated people and point your lives to that reality. Let it frame you up. Let it frame you up. I'm coming back. That's what he says. And listen, he's not minimizing your pain. He's sympathetic. He's right there with you. He hurts with you. He cries with you. He's fighting it out with you. He's right there. But make no mistake, he's he's in control. He's in control. He's got the reins. He's not out of control. Oh my gosh, what's going on? I hope it works out for everybody. It's a weird view of God. It's an unbiblical word, an unbiblical view of God. And he's also not telling you not to hurt. God's also not telling you not to ache, not to feel that pinch inside. He's not saying that either. He's just saying stop vocalizing it in a way that defames him, destroys community, and mars his image while we're on mission. That's what he's saying. That's basically what he's saying. I mean, grumbling, it damages, it damages and it fractures the community of God. I mean, honestly... I'll tell you honestly why it does that. It's because when you grumble, you're annoying. And it drives people away. People don't like to be around you. I know that because I am one. We're annoying. And instead of collecting people around a beautiful king, we drive them away because we're annoying. I mean, I like to grumble. And I don't even like to be around grumblers. Grumblers don't even like to be around each other. We're so annoying. Right? It's true. No one wants to catch the reruns of your soap opera. They don't want to hear it over and over again. The thing is, is when you and I are grumbling repeatedly about the things that we feel like God has ripped us off on, we actually forget and we minimize the pain in other people's lives. Think about that. That's one of the ways it drives a wedge into community. We actually ignore that there's something going on with other people, that they're even in the room. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't even see you in the room. I was so caught up in my own swirling universe, and my own need and deep bleeding, and my own vacuous black hole of meanness. You know? It's all about me. I didn't even notice you were there. How was your week? How was your week? Is there anything I can do with you? Anything for you? Pray? I mean, my eyes were rolled so far to the back of my head, and I was groaning and grumbling so loud, I didn't even catch you there. How are you doing? It drives a wedge in community. Because we don't notice and minister to the needs in other people's lives. It's tough. I'll tell you, 
Well, listen, you're never going to be satisfied. I do feel like there's a piece of me that will feel better in my suffering if everyone else hears me and hears my pain. I do feel like that. And I don't even care if you encourage me. I don't even care if you do that. It's just me knowing that you know and hurt with me. And you're interested in my life. For some reason that brings a remedy to me. But friend, sympathy in other people can't be a remedy for you. It can't. It's just not good enough. You're going to need something much bigger than that. We're never going to be able to be satisfied with other people focusing on us all the time. And what our problems are. As we grumble out loud at how we feel like we've been ripped off. You're going to need something bigger than that. And the biggest reason this is destructive is because it ends and it points to us. It doesn't end with our king. It doesn't point to our king at all. It ends with us. Grumbling ends with us. And we don't just find remedy and suffering when people are consumed with us and fixated on us. We also find it, and this is very strange that we do this as humanity, we also find solace and peace when others around us are hurting worse than us. Isn't that weird how we do that? seems weird. I mean, he uses Job as an example. But listen, he doesn't put Job up there so his listeners go, Job, I forgot about Job. Man, that dude had it bad. I guess I'll shut up now. I guess I'll quit grumbling now. I mean, I'm not Job. That's not why he did that. That's not why he did that. But this is a common mistake for us in suffering. We like to find solace and peace when other people around us are doing poor. We do this. And I get it. It places our suffering into context. I get that. I've had this... There's a reason I'm telling you this. I've had this toe thing and my big toe on my right foot. That sumo wrestling thing the other night. I thought I broke it. I think I just jammed it. The whole thing turned black. Man, I whined about that thing. I must have said hurt big toe or something big toe or black big toe. I must have said that, what, like 80 times in two days. I'm all showing it off. Everyone look at it. Listen to my big... Yeah, listen, it, until I stand next to a person with no foot... And then I'm shutting up, right? I quit talking about my big jam toe when I'm standing next to someone that doesn't have an arm. So I get it. It puts it into context. But listen, if you can only make sense of your suffering, if you have to face and focus on people that are doing poorly, if you can only make sense of your suffering if you're in burn wards or watching atrocities, other people's lives just tank. Friend, that is wrong. It's weird, strange, and also it's unbiblical because what you've done is you've gone to the wrong well to dip your bucket. You've gone, instead of being chastened and driven to the gospel for your answer, you've gone to cracked creation and the effects of sin. So the only way I feel better about myself is looking at this person who's cracked down under Adam's curse and has sin and destruction and he's got cancer and he's fallen apart and now I feel better about myself. That's not how God meant that to happen, by the way. It does put things into perspective and I get that. But remember the first time you saw a commercial with the kids that are starving in some other country? And the first time you saw it, weren't you like, oh my gosh, where do I dial? And then the 19th time you see it, you just flip the channel, whatever, going on to the next thing. Why? Because it doesn't have lasting power, because that's not the answer. Cracked creation is not going to be your encouragement. It's not your answer. The gospel is your answer. The gospel is your answer. God never meant our hurting to drive us towards broken creation. Jesus is the rescue for our suffering. And I'm going to explain it right here, how that works. We're going to look at Job, just because James did. And we don't have time to hit all the prophets, obviously. But Job is a pretty intriguing story, is it not? Job is, a, is an intriguing story. 
His entire existence was suffering. The bulk of his work was suffering. You've got a guy who God gave the green light to the devil, to the enemy of your soul and my soul, to go and basically obliterate his lifestyle by taking his family away, all of his wealth, even all of his health, to take it away. Just putting him right on the precipice of death. But then God's saying, stay your hand, you will not kill him. So death's hand was stayed on Job. I mean, what else would we expect but grumbling from him? That should be his native tongue. Of course it wasn't. He did go through his fair share of grumbling. But we see something a little bit different. But the thing about the story of Job is we have a better model than Job. Job points to an ultimate sufferer. One where death's hand was not stayed. Where death came and swept him right into the cross and killed him. We have an ultimate sufferer. We have one who experienced the absence of God's presence up on a cross. Not for being himself, but for being you and for being me. Not for living a sleazy life, but because we lived a sleazy life. He actually felt, says Isaiah 53, the wrath of God crushing him on that tree. Crushing him. Not because he had a ton of sin in his life and he deserved it, but because we had a ton of sin in our life and we deserved it. He did this. There is nothing worse than this that's ever happened in humanity. It is ultimate suffering. It is ultimate suffering. And we have a better model in it. We have a better model in Jesus. Because when he was in his ultimate point of suffering, he did not grumble, he did not complain, he did not whine, he did not whimper, he leaked grace, he exuded grace, he showered humanity with grace. That's how he handled us. And the thing about the story of Job is, and we usually read this wrong, by the way, because what we usually do when we mishandle the book of Job is look what, look what happened to Job. Job actually didn't do so bad in the end, did he? Bigger family, bigger wealth, healthy guy, everyone likes him. That wasn't his ultimate reward, folks. The win for Job was not getting more money and more stuff and being healthier, losing that cough and getting more kids. That wasn't his win. The win was as he saw, apprehended, and got God for his reward. God was his reward. God was his reward. And God will use patience inside of your suffering to drive you to the same place, to show you that he alone is your reward. God is your reward. He'll do the same thing, and it's good for us. Because our default setting, whenever we're in suffering, is just to treat that exit ramp, that point of alleviation, as our rescuer. Finally getting that guy. Finally getting that girl. Finally getting that job. The sickness finally going away. We look to that as our reward. Oh God, if you could just do that. That's the whole point of Job. Is that that was not his attitude. And listen, that might alleviate some immediate tension. Getting that girl, guy, job, whatever. It might work just for a little bit. But that's not the reward your heart is really looking for. It's looking for something much deeper than that. I mean, yes, Job did get a second life. A second lease on life. But he found God as his treasure. He says this in Job 42, as you can already see. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job was saturated and satisfied in God alone as his reward. What does that mean? We got a question last week and I didn't get a chance to answer it. It fits in well here. It was texted in last week and it was, Luke, you've said this and I hear this thrown around a lot. What does it mean to be satisfied in Jesus? 
to be satiated in Jesus, totally satisfied. It simply means it says, have any of you ever just eaten such a good meal and you just could not put one more bite in your mouth? You're just totally satisfied. The plogs had us over for lunch slash dinner because we kept eating yesterday. And she made this coffee fudge. That's just what I'm going to call it. It was out of control good. And I just kept sticking it in my mouth and eating it over and over again. Listen, I was satisfied. You could have put prime rib in front of me. You could have put incredible, beautifully prepared food in front of me. And I would have just been like, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. Sure, it's attractive. Not right now. I'm totally satisfied. Satisfied. Is prime rib good? Yeah. Job having more kids, good? Yep. New wealth, Job, is that good? Yep, it's good. It's all good. But I'm satisfied, and God is my reward. That's where our suffering is supposed to drive us. That's what we are being patient for. Not for the exit. Not not because, listen, you'll get well, the sickness will go away, and you'll get another one. But is it driving you to the gospel? Is it driving you to God? So I'm finishing with this. You know, if you are here and you are like me, an impatient sufferer, if you're inclined to grumble, right? If you look like the world whenever you're hemmed in, I want you to ask yourself a question. In your suffering, that place when you hurt and you long for relief, do you find God as your reward or do you find an escape as your reward? What do you find as your reward? We all look for the escape. No one likes being sick. No one likes being unemployed. We all look for the reward. But where is your treasure? What are you satisfied in? Where do you get your encouragement, Christian? Where do you get your encouragement? You ought not get it from people dying and failing around you. We should not be getting our encouragement from that. We should not be getting our encouragement from chasing after alleviation from our suffering. We shouldn't get it from that. We shouldn't get it also by grumbling and blowing up and bleeding all over anyone that will care to listen. We shouldn't get our encouragement from that. We should get it by the new life that God has given us, by what God has done, what He is doing now to conform us and to make us more like Jesus, and what He will do as He comes back on a white horse to collect us all. That is where we should get our encouragement. That is what James is saying in this passage. He's saying, aim your lives differently. Aim your suffering in a different direction. Don't aim it like the world where the nearest exit ramp is, will do. Anything to get me out of this pain will do. Aim it towards the gospel. And we never really see God coming back as part of the gospel, but it is. It is part of the gospel, friend. He is coming back. Look at what Christ went off and did. Look at what he did. Let that encourage you. Look at what he did for you. Look at your sin and say, man, look what I've done. And then look at Jesus and say, man, look what you've done. Look what you've done for me. And instead of glorifying ourselves, inventing complaints in every way, we should draw attention to God in our suffering. We should. This is what it says in Romans 8. I've taken a couple little passages out and I'm going to read it to you. It should be up there, man. I think it is. Yeah. Just read along with this because it does skip around. But read it through the lens of what we've talked about. For I, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, think about that question. 
we usually rattle right through it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword, or foreclosure, or cancer, or bad boss, or cracked marriage, infidelity, bankruptcy, death. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, this is what has been given us instead of grumbling to build community. This whole framework of seeing God has been given to us to build community around, to build mission upon. It's the gospel. This is better. This galvanizes a testimony before a city of Knoxville that's wringing its hands, trying to figure out what to do with its suffering. This is what's been given us. A love that deep that nothing can drive a wedge in there. And listen, some of you are in here and you might not be very close to Jesus at all. You might not know Jesus at all. And so for those of you who are far from Christ, there is this beautiful statement that Job says, and this is at the end of his life, towards the end of the story. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. All he's saying is, is now my heart apprehends what you've done. Now I get it. Now I understand. Until now, God, it was just stuff I'd hear. And we've all been there, right? Just stuff I'd hear. But now... It's running right through me and I totally get it. Listen, your suffering, friend, it might have seemed like it just doesn't have a point to it. Your suffering might seem like it has no point to it. And you hear people around you saying, hey man, it was just meant to be. It's fate. You don't even know what that means. We don't even know what that means. So it doesn't satisfy you whenever you hear that. But it's a struggle. It doesn't seem to be any architecture to your suffering. Design. I'm here to tell you that your pain and your suffering does have a design and it does have steering in it and it is meant to steer you towards what Jesus has done. That is what it's supposed to do. That's where your suffering is supposed to drive you. Towards the God-man who makes promises and then he keeps them. He's a promise maker and he's a promise keeper. What's required, however, is abandonment. Abandonment of your own power, gripping things tightly as hard as you can, trying to manipulate your own way through life. But it's yielding it all, putting your crown at his feet and calling a new one king in your life. That's what's required. So, as we transition, and the team can go ahead and come back up because we're finishing. As we finish... And we do this every week, but just to reiterate it, we have communion at the back. That's a moment that we take as a church to celebrate what God has done through a broken body and a spilt blood. But it's also something very beautiful because it, as we said last week, it doesn't just celebrate what was done on the cross. It actually also celebrates with 
the forward with the future in mind. It celebrates the banquet table that is waiting for us. The next time we take communion with our King, which will be in heaven, at a banqueting table that we have no business sitting at, but God has actually awarded us a seat. So as we take communion today, take it yes for what God has done, but understand that that also represents what He is doing now and what He will do. He is going to collect us all to a better place. He's going to collect us all to a better meal. Okay? So as you take that with your family, with a roommate, as you take it with part of your missional community, however you want to take that, take that with that remembrance in mind. And also, we'll have a couple people in the back. Can we get Jeremy and Lindsay? Could both you guys be in the back? So if you want someone to talk to, listen, if you just need someone to pray with, go ahead and stand with me, in fact. If you just need someone to pray with, you're struggling with trusting God in an area. Your patience has just been anything but. You've thrown it right out the window because you've struggled with this suffering. And you've done everything you can to take it back into your hands and manipulate the variables so you don't hurt anymore. And the last thing you've let your suffering do is drive you towards the cross. If you need someone to talk to, you should come back there and pray with one of us today. Okay? But really make this a moment between you and God.